Today, the passage that we're going to be looking at is a very short passage from Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 to 23. And I will um, just tell you up front that one of my desires from this passage and from this message today is that I hope that one response from you would be that you would join us in fasting uh, uh, today after hearing this message. That's kind of like the one of the tail end applications, and there's a lot in between here, but that's, that's the hope. That's what we're going to come back around to. I hope that this message encourages you and inspires you to join us in fasting as a church and to maybe fast for the first time in your life if you've never fasted before. And we're going to be looking at Ezra chapter 8. Now, we just jumped into Ezra, so you're like, what's going on here? What's happening in the book of Ezra? Maybe you don't know what the book of Ezra is about. Well, basically, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, these two books kind of um, go hand in hand. And what's happening here is that, if you recall, the northern kingdom of Israel, as well as the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, because of their hundreds of years of rebellion against God, idolatry, apostasy, God brought judgment upon both of these kingdoms. And foreign nations, the Assyrian nation, as well as the Babylonian Empire, came and conquered both of these kingdoms, took thousands and thousands of people into exile, back to Assyria, back to Babylon, and left the very poorest of the land there in Jerusalem to continue to work the land in Israel. But then by the grace of God, years later, certain powerful kings of the, of the Babylonian Empire, of the Persian Empire, showed favor to the Israelites and allowed them to go back and to begin to rebuild in Jerusalem. In fact, at one point they said to them, go back and rebuild the temple and, I, and we'll fund it and we will, we will help to make it happen. And many Israelites went down to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple. We see that happening in the book of Ezra. And then by the time we get to Ezra chapter 8, Ezra himself is sent down there as a priest to go and to restart temple worship. You see, they had, they had rebuilt the temple, but they didn't really have the know-how to really do all the, the sacrifices and the incense and all the things that God said was supposed to happen in the temple. So Ezra, who is a descendant of Aaron, so Ezra is a priest, he's also a scribe, he knows the word of God really well, he gets sent down to reinstitute the actual worship in the temple. And then if you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, the next book in the Bible, Nehemiah goes down to rebuild the wall. So it's kind of like a three-part thing here. Rebuild the temple, reinstitute the temple worship, rebuild the wall. There's a process going on here in, in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now today, the passage in, in chapter 8, what's happening here is Ezra is about to be sent down to reinstitute temple worship. So Artaxerxes, the, the king, the, the, the king of the empire of the Babylonians at this time, um, sends Ezra down and says, go down and reinstitute the temple worship, and I will give you gold, silver. I will tell the people down there, the other, the other provinces there, the governors, to treat you guys nicely, to give you whatever you need so that you can worship the God of heaven. Now, why would Artaxerxes do this? Well, obviously, it's the hand of God upon him compelling him to do this, but it's, it's also because Artaxerxes worshiped many gods, and you know, you want every god to like you, right? That's the, you don't want any god to be angry at you. 
Sure, he had his own Babylonian gods, and if another god came to pick on him, he would pray to his Babylonian gods to defend Babylon, to defend him. But at the end of the day, it's better not to have any gods not like you. (laughs) It's better to be on the good side of every god out there. So he says, hey, go down there, make the god of heaven, the god of Israel, happy. And whatever resources you need, do it, do it. So tremendous favor is shown to Ezra. So Ezra um, prepares the people to go down. The king, Artaxerxes, also said to him, you can take whoever wants to go with you. Any Israelites, Levites, priests, bring them down with you and, and have them go, freely go, in order to reinstitute the temple worship. So Ezra uh, gathered together the priest. He gathered together Levites, and he gathered together other Israelites who were not of the priestly class or the Levitical class to go with him as well. And in total, this caravan was about 5,000 people. 5,000 people God put upon their hearts to head down to um, Jerusalem. Now, let me keep that in mind as as I read here these three verses. This is what Ezra did before they set out on this journey. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava. This is back in Babylon. That we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath, oops, sorry, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Now, before I talk more about this passage and why it's it's so interesting and fascinating here. Keep in mind this. Let me describe to you this caravan and this route that they were taking a little bit here. Now, remember, 5,000 people were going to go on this journey. Now, this is Google Maps, so ignore the borders and stuff here. Uh, If you look at the route that they took, okay, and and this is the route that they took basically in, in that time. And it was about 900, 950 miles, give or take, from Babylon over here, all the way up through modern-day Syria, through Aleppo, down here through Lebanon, all the way down here back to Jerusalem. Roughly 900 to 950 miles. Now, I know it says here it's a 310-hour walk. (laughs) Ignore that. That's modern-day, paved roads, solo traveler, Maybe, maybe you could do it in a few weeks. But back then, it took them four months. If you read the Bible, it says it was four months for them because this was a caravan of 5,000 people. And remember, anybody could go. So whole families went. They didn't want to split up their families. So you have, you have not only uh, men, you have their wives, you have women, you have um, the elderly, you have little children, you have thousands of people of all different ages traveling these 900 miles, 
not all of it was paved. This is before the Roman Empire. Remember when the, all roads lead to Rome and they built out this huge network of roads so their army could move anywhere really fast? A lot of this, I'm sure, I haven't walked in myself personally, but a lot of this was dirt. <laughs> it, was, it was hilly. It was sandy. This was a very slow-moving affair. It was hot. You got to rest. You got to stop. This was a long, long journey. I mean, you ever, you know, like you ever like uh, watch a movie with a bunch of your friends and then 10 of you afterwards are trying to figure out where to go eat and you spend 30 minutes on the sidewalk trying to figure out where to go eat. You know what I'm talking about, right? Because <laughs> there are 10 of you. This is 5,000 people. <laughs> 5,000 people. Now they know where they were going, but this is one heck of a, a journey that they're on. Took them four months. Now, it was, what was really amazing here is that when Ezra, he asked for no military escort on this trip. But the thing is, actually, this is popping in and out here. That will help. Ezra here, um, he asked for no military escort. But this group was clearly a civilian caravan. Anybody would be able to tell this. Um, you would see as they were traveling, they were slow moving. You could see children. You could see the elderly. There were no, no soldiers there with them. It was obviously a civilian caravan. And this was a prime target for, for bandits and robbers or, or enemies. Now remember, this is a massive empire. This is a huge empire. Not everybody liked Artaxerxes. It's the Wild West in so many of these areas. It's not like there's surveillance cameras everywhere and a police system and guarding every part of the road. This was the Wild West out there. You may think, well, if I were rolling in a group 5,000 deep, I wouldn't be scared of nothing. But only a fraction of that were were. were maybe armed men. And there were enemies out there that could come and pick off groups of this caravan very, very easily. Look, uh, as in later on, in verse 31, maybe I get some help with this. This is completely off the screen here. In Ezra 31, it says, then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. So you could tell here what Ezra's saying is that this was a very real thing. Enemies, ambushes along the way is a very real danger. Even though we're 5,000 people, this was a seriously dangerous thing. Not only that, one other thing, let me add here. They were carrying tremendous amounts of treasure with them down to Jerusalem. The king, Artaxerxes, said, go down there, reinstitute this worship. And he also said, take a whole bunch of gold, silver, whatever you need in order to worship God properly down there. And let me read this to you, what they brought down. It says this, and I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels and the, off, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. And I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver. A talent 
was about 130 pounds, okay? So you do the math. And silver vessels worth 200 talents. And 100 talents of gold, so that's like, what, six tons, six and a half tons of gold? 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. They were carrying a king's fortune with them down through this bandit-infested land over a four-month period. That's crazy. I remember the first time when I was young, I went to the bank and I had to withdraw a large amount of cash. You know, like, you know, it happens in your life. You just need to do a big cash withdrawal for some reason. Remember that the first time I did that and the teller gave me the cash? And then I was like, that's it? You're just leaving me now? I don't get like security guard that walked me to my car or something. And then I looked around. Who else in the bank heard that I took out this much cash? And then I walk out in the streets of Manhattan on the street and I'm like putting the money in my pocket. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to get home. I got to get home. You know what I'm talking about? Ezra went for four months, 900 miles, carrying a king's fortune with no armed escort. 5,000 men, women, grandpas, grandmas, and children. This is a heavy-duty responsibility. So he fasts, he prays, and then he goes on this road, on the road. He travels without any protection. Now, what do we do with this? Now, this is a, it's a nice story, right? And if you're a Christian... Maybe you read something like this and you go, oh, that's a nice story. That's, that's very pleasant. Wow, look at Ezra, man of such, such faith. That's really incredible. They went on this dangerous journey and they prayed and they fasted and they got there and, and that's wonderful. Kumbaya. <laughs> End of my Bible reading, my, my devotional. But it doesn't go beyond there. It doesn't get any further into our lives. Why? Why? I would say this, because it seems so impractical. Doesn't it? It seems so ridiculously impractical. I mean, come on, Ezra. (laughs) Asking for protection would be an extremely reasonable request. An extremely practical request. In fact, Nehemiah, who went later on after him to rebuild the wall, went with an armed escort. Went with military. So so there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. So for Ezra, this seems like something that is so impractical to do. Asking for a military escort seems like a very reasonable request. It seems like such a practical thing to do. Why in the world would we not ask for it? So really nice story there, Ezra. But in terms of what difference this makes in my life, not really anything, right? Because we're practical people. We live in a practical world. I mean, do you lock your doors at night? I lock my doors at night. I'm not a, I'm not a super saint. I lock my doors at night, people. I do. Come, visit me at 2 a.m., try and open my door. You won't be able to get in. I do that. Why? Because we live in a world where there's crime, where people steal things. It's a reality. And locking our doors is a very practical thing to do at night, even if you're a Christian. Do that. Lock your door at night. 
It's a practical thing to do. If your doctor said to you, you need this surgery, it's very important for you. If you don't get this surgery, you're going to die. And you come up to me, you say, Ulysses, what should I do? I'm a Christian. Should I get this surgery? I'll say, yes. <laughs> get that surgery. Is it a good doctor? Did he get a degree? <laughs> Does he have a good reputation? Does he know what he's talking about? Did you get a second opinion? Okay, if he says you need the surgery, get the surgery. Because we live in a world where there are laws of physics and biology and if what the doctor is saying is sensible and you need that surgery, get that surgery. We will pray with you along the way for God's grace and the successful surgery and all those things, but chances are you need it and you should get that surgery, right? That's, that's how we live. That's practical. That's how I live. That's how most of us live, and that's okay. That's normal. But here's the thing. Here's one thing we have to keep in mind. And, and, and this is so important because this is so foundational to this message too and to our understanding of Christian life as well. Here's the thing. Faith is often very impractical. Now that's something that we need to realize and understand because if we don't understand that, we're not going to get, we're going to look at Ezra and say, nice, that's pie in the sky. What are we going to do with that? I feel warm and fuzzy, and then we'll move on. We need to realize that faith is oftentimes very impractical. Let me give you a few examples. A few examples from the Bible. Gideon and his 300 men. God told Gideon, who had a decent-sized army, to whittle it down until it was an army of 300 men. And then he told Gideon to, to take these 300 men and go up against 135,000 Midianites, the Midianite army. 135,000. That is 450 to 1 odds. <laughs> 450 to 1. Those are really bad odds. And you know what he told them to do? He said, go up there at night onto the mountain, and I want you to go and blow your kazoo and take your glow stick with you, and then go and charge this Midianite army. Would you do that? Wouldn't you say, that is ridiculous. God would never tell me to do something like that because it's a suicide mission. It is so unbelievably impractical. God would never, ever say something like that. It's, it's a non-starter. But God did tell Gideon to do that. And he delivered the entire Midianite army into Gideon's hand. Let me give you another one. In the Old Testament, God told the Israelites, he said, three times a year, Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. These three major festivals every year, God told them, come up to Jerusalem, all of you, all the men, and bring offerings and sacrifice and worship God. Now, what would you think there if you heard this? Oh, God, yes, that sounds great. But surely you don't mean all the men. You don't mean like, the army that's guarding our, guarding our borders, 
right? You don't mean all the troops out of every city, out of every town, and to take all the fighting men and gather them in one spot in Jerusalem, leave all of the borders of Israel unguarded so that if any enemy army came in, there'd be no resistance whatsoever. And then they could come, steamroll all of Israel and come and surround and besiege Jerusalem and then kill us all and take over our land. You don't mean that, right? And not just a one-off. Three times a year? You don't, you don't mean that. So it became so obvious what we were doing. You don't mean that, right? Yes, I do. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Basically, what God is saying is, yes, I want you to do that. And by the way, I know it sounds crazy, but when you do it, when you come, nobody's going to want to attack you. How does that work? I don't know. It's like the Moabites and the Ammonites are like, oh, there they go again. Border's completely unguarded. Should we go and attack? Nah, the game's on. Maybe next festival. Again and again and again. Absolutely impractical, ridiculous. But God told them to do this. That's what God said to them. One last example here. Jesus told his 12 disciples to go out and to preach the gospel. He sent them out. You remember this? From the gospels, from the book of Luke. And what did he tell them? He said, take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. I see it's Peter standing there with his like REI backpack filled with stuff. He's like, oh, leave this behind? You don't mean nothing, right, Jesus? Nothing. Go out and depend completely on the grace of God as you're going about the work of the kingdom of God. No money. What about American Express? Right? Don't leave home without it. You didn't say credit cards, right? Nothing. Take nothing with you. It seems ridiculously impractical. If I said to my wife, Christine, hey, we're going we're gonna to go on a mission trip. Let's go, us, the family. She goes, okay, let me go pack. I said, I don't pack. Let's just go. We'll be fine. No luggage, no nothing. Let's just go like that. That's crazy. Who would do that? Jesus told his disciples to do that. So what we see from the Bible is that at times, God tells his people to do really impractical things as his people. God does that sometimes. So, here's the question. What do we do with this? The question is, how do we know then when faith, when God is calling us to do something impractical, to to live by faith, to do something that, that in the eyes of the world, that they would say, that's ridiculous. That's silly. That's impractical. That's, you shouldn't do that. That's not logical. How do we know when God calls us to do something like that? Because the God of the Bible is still the God of today. Now, I'll tell you, I don't know. <laughs> Aren't you the pastor? I don't know. 
I don't know when God is telling you to do that. It's not black and white. It's more art than science. It's a very case-by-case thing to know when God is leading you to do something like that. But I will say this. When we look, I want to look at Ezra's life, at Ezra and what happened here in Ezra chapter 8, because I do believe we look at what's going on in him and his life and his situation, at least we can learn something. At least there's something here that maybe it can inform us a little bit more about what it means for us to be able to live as disciples of God. Here's what happened for Elijah. I'm going to, uh, for Ezra. I'm going to go back here to verse 22 here. Look at what he says here. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. What was happening in Ezra's situation? For Ezra, he had been talking up his God to Artaxerxes, to the king of the Babylonians. Our God is a sovereign Lord. Our God is good to his people. Man, our God is strong. He is trustworthy. He is for his people, Artaxerxes. That's who he is. And oh, by the way, Artaxerxes, anybody who's against the people of God, people who are the enemies of the enemies of the people of God, God is against those people. God's wrath will be poured out against those people. That's who our God is. That's what he'd been saying. He'd been talking up his God to, to Artaxerxes. And now, at this moment, he was about to head out to Jerusalem and he had to think, suddenly, if I ask for horsemen and chariots, and, a, and soldiers to go with us. What does that say to Artaxerxes? Our God is for us. He protects us. He's good to his people. He's against those who are enemies. But you know what, by the way, why don't you give us some troops? <laughs> some horsemen, some soldiers, because well, let's get real now. Let's get practical. <laughs> it's a long and dangerous road. That's what Ezra was thinking. Ezra was concerned about the reputation of God. For Ezra, this is what was happening for him. I believe that Ezra in this moment was having a crisis of faith. He knew that there was a lot riding on this decision. He knew that he was responsible for all this gold and silver. He knew that he was responsible not only for his own life, but for the life of 5,000 other people, men, women, children, old people, young people, everybody. It was all upon him. But for him, he had to decide, do I really believe what the Bible says about who God is? Do I believe what I've been saying to Artaxerxes? Do I believe this or not? He had a crisis of faith. He had a decision to make there. And for him, for Ezra, he decided, I need to put my money where my mouth is. I need to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. And this is one of those moments in my life 
in the lives of us 5,000, in the, in the way that we witness to and testify of who God is before Artaxerxes and the Babylonian Empire, this is one of, this mo- one of those moments. Who do we really believe God is? Do I really believe this? That was one of those moments for Ezra. And he decided, we are going to believe that God is who he says he is. And we're going to fast and we're going to pray and we're not going to ask for an escort. Brothers and sisters, my point is this. If you are a Christian, if you believe the Bible, sooner or later, you're going to have to decide do I really believe what the Bible says about who God is? Am I really going to believe that? There's going to come a point in your life when you're going to have to decide, am I going to believe that that's who God is? Or am I going to continue to live this practical, quote-unquote practical life? It is easy for us, brothers and sisters, to profess Christianity, but to live as a functional atheist. It's so easy to do that in the name of practicality. We profess that we're a Christian, but in the way that we live, when our non-believing neighbors look at us, there is no difference between how we live and how they live. We live as a functional atheist. And I believe that God is challenging us this morning. Do you believe this? Maybe this is a time in your life right now where God is is putting his finger on your heart in some way where he's calling you and challenging you to put your money where your mouth is and to believe that he is who the Bible says that he is and to take a step of faith and to live impractically in this world. I'll give you a few examples. In Matthew, Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? What is God saying? Don't worry about what you'll eat or drink. Don't worry about money. Don't worry about those things. I take care of the birds. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are of so much more value than any of those other things in this world. Won't I take care of you then? You see, what this promise challenges us to do is to be able to live with radical generosity. To be able to live truly as a steward of all that we possess, all that we have, and to live in radical generosity towards our neighbors, towards those around us, towards kingdom causes, towards God, to be rich towards God, as the Bible says. But if we live in the name of practicality, we will, we will never have enough to be able to be radically generous. God, how can I be radically generous? I'm still saving up towards being able to buy that home. I don't even have my own house yet. How can I be radically generous? God, I haven't figured out my retirement yet. 
Brothers and sisters, if, if you need to figure out, if you're there thinking, how can I make sure I get to 67 and a half and do I have enough to retire off of that? Is my target fund hitting that date? And only when I have all of that set and then any excess that I have, then I can begin to live generously towards my neighbor, towards those around me and towards kingdom causes. You will never, ever have You will never be able to live with an impractical faith. It's just not going to happen. When it comes to sharing the gospel, Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What Jesus is saying is, you know what? The work of evangelism, of people coming to know the gospel, it's his work. At the end of the day, it is the work of the Holy Spirit drawing people to him those whom he has predestined, those whom he has chosen. And we are simply the vessels. We're witnesses only. And we testify to who God is. And God will work through that. But if we're there and we say, you know what? It's not practical. I don't know the answer to every question that I may be asked yet. I need, I need to get that. I need to learn more before I can talk about God. Brothers and sisters, you'll never talk about God then. Because there will always be questions that you don't know the answers to. Oh, I, I can't share the gospel yet. People may be offended. I don't know how the people around me will respond to that. Then, brothers and sisters, you will never share the gospel. Because the Bible says the gospel is offensive. It is a message that is offensive. That we are sinners. That we cannot save ourselves. And that Jesus had to die upon the cross for us. We will never share the gospel then. Because people will always be offended if we try to live practically. Jesus, uh, Paul said, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What God is saying is, I don't work through perfect people. I don't work through the most gifted people, the most eloquent people. I work through the humble. I work through those who are weak, actually, so that when the power of God works through you, I receive the glory. God gets all the glory. But if we say, I can't do anything for God. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I didn't go to the seminary. I, I, you know, I can't do it on any of those things. I can't really serve God. I'm just a pew warmer. That's my role. I'm here. I come to church and I sit down and I keep the pews warm. That's my role. That's what I do here. I don't know enough. Brothers and sisters, if that's what we think, if we're enslaved to the fear of failure, we will never be able to serve God. In the name of practicality, I'm not equipped enough. I'm not tooled enough. Our God has said that he works through the weak to shame the strong. Brothers and sisters, the things that God calls us to will never do if we live in the name of practicality. Sometimes God calls us to be impractical as we follow him. You may have heard me tell the story before of Charles Blondin. I love this story. He was uh, one of the uh, famous tightrope walkers of Niagara Falls. Back in the 1800s, he said he was going to walk a tightrope across the Canadian to the American side of Niagara Falls. And all these people said, you're crazy. 
You're going to die. You're nuts, man. No way. So all these people gathered together in 1859 to watch him. And he took this huge pole and he got up on this tightrope and people were jeering him, basically saying, you're going to die. You're going to turn right back around because you're going to be so scared. And sure enough, Charles Blondin walks out there as he's walking 160 feet above the, the falls. Suddenly people get quiet. They're like, oh my gosh, this guy is doing this. And he gets past the halfway point. He gets to, towards the other side. And when he makes it safely across the other side while people with bated breath are watching and he stands on solid ground, people are cheering. They're going nuts. They're shouting, oh my gosh, Blondin, Blondin, Blondin. And Charles Blondin didn't just stop there. He started upping the game. He was like, you ain't seen nothing yet. He started doing crazy things. Like he walked across, um, uh, on a, you know, he rode a bicycle across the tightrope. Um, one time he took a little stove with him and he stopped in the middle of the tightrope and he cooked an omelet and he ate it. He just started going, he was just showing off at this point, right? And he did this multiple times and people were just losing their mind watching this guy do these amazing things. Now this is one time he took a wheelbarrow and he walked across the falls with a wheelbarrow. And again, people are screaming and they're shouting. They're like, Blondin, you're amazing. Blondin, Blondin. And he goes to the crowds and he hushes them. He says, who of you believes that I can walk across these falls again on this tightrope? And everybody says, we believe, we believe, we believe, Blondin. And then he says, who of you believes that I can walk across the tightrope with this wheelbarrow again? And people said, we believe, we believe, Blondin, we believe. And then Charles Blondin said, which of you wants to get in the wheelbarrow? And then this silence, this hush came across the crowd. Nobody said anything. And I think that is such a fitting description of our faith at times. We say, God, good for you. You protected Ezra. Our God is a God who can do that. Our God is a God of power and he loves his people. He's amazing. He protects his people, all these things. But when it comes to us, ah, That'd be so impractical. Come on, God. Are you serious? No, no, no. We live in a real world here. Let's not do anything stupid now. That's how we live our faith. And we live functionally as atheists. Brothers and sisters, there comes a point in your life, if you're following Christ, you can't just live a practical life. You can't live a practical life in the eyes of this world. You're going to need to do things. God is going to call you. Again, I don't know what. Please get that surgery. If, if you're thinking that you're not going to go get that surgery now, no, no, come talk to me first. And we'll go talk to your doctor, okay? Don't do anything like that. But at times in your life, there's going to come a point where God is going to challenge you and say, do you really believe this or not? Is this just stories to you? Is this like Peter Pan? Or do you believe this? If you do, when are you going to start living it out? And maybe today, God is putting something in your heart. Maybe God is challenging you to begin to share the gospel. Maybe God is challenging you to begin to live more generously. Maybe God is, is beginning to challenge you to raise your children in the Lord rather than just preparing them for the practical things of this world, but to raise them up in the Lord. God, maybe God's putting something on your heart this day. Do not let this moment 
pass you by. God may be calling you into a greater level of faith and living for him. Let me close with this. Verse 23 again. So Ezra, what did he do? In the face of this 900-mile journey filled with bandits, he says, so we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Brothers and sisters, I close with this. Ezra didn't do nothing. Ezra didn't say, well, let's roll the dice (laughs) and maybe we'll get lucky. That's not what Ezra did. Ezra told these 5,000 people, this is a dangerous journey, but we have a God to honor in the eyes of the Babylonians. And this is a moment that he has called us to. And we are going to pray and we are going to fast that God comes through for us. Ezra didn't do nothing. He used the most powerful spiritual weapon that he had at his disposal. He didn't just pray, but he prayed with a bullhorn, which is what fasting is. These people cried out to God and said, God, we're putting it all on the line. We need you. We're going to trust you for this, God. And Lord, now we need you to show up. And God did. If if you read this and you go, well, fasting, that's nice, but come on, let's get practical. (laughs) An armed guard is practical. Praying and fasting, what's that going to do? Brothers and sisters, if that's how you feel, then then maybe, maybe you need to examine what you believe about God. Maybe you are enslaved to earthly practicality and you are viewing all things from a material point of view and you discount the power of prayer and fasting and you're not seeing the reality of the spiritual God who answers prayer and fasting. I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, this week, would you fast with us for 24 hours? Maybe God is putting something on your heart this morning and he's challenging you and there's a stirring in your heart. Yes, I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to put my money where my mouth is. I want to walk the walk and not just talk to talk. And that's scary, and I get it, but I invite you to fast for God's presence to be with you as you take that step of faith.